I don't know if you've picked up on that language of the New Testament that clearly talks about us both individually and particularly as, as men, as husbands, but also as the church, uh, that we are called a spiritual priesthood, a, a spiritual house. And uh, we're going to look at some of these passages, and we're going to look at them in a way that speaks of part of, not all of, but part of the priestly role that we see unfolded in the Old Testament relative particularly to the high priest. I wish we had time to, to go into it a little bit more deeply and look at Old Testament passages, not to substantiate what we're talking about this morning. I think that's going to be pretty clear from the New Testament. But it's amazing how in the Old Testament, in a number of passages that we could look at, the priest had several, many duties. But one of those duties that a priest occupied on behalf of the people, in a sense, he was the, the go-between, the mediator, uh, the person who represented the people before God. And because he was a priest, he was a priestly representative from God to the people. So it went both ways. He was the representative of God to the people, and he was the representative person who stood before God. And because of that, he had certain duties, of course. And one of those that I want to key in on is that that priesthood in the Old Testament was something very, very important that that priest did, occupied himself in, and that was intercessory prayer intercessory prayer. He prayed for the people. He prayed for them. He, he interceded on their behalf uh, to intercede. Again, a sort of go-between, uh, someone who would bring the, the people to God uh, collectively. And as a, as a people group, he would bring the, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, before God. And of course, as you know, he often brought them before God in a way that said, Oh, these people, from a negative vantage point. Lord, don't wipe us out. You would have every right and responsibility to wipe us out because of our great sins. But please, I ask you to take this people and mold them and shape them so that they would be truly your obedient people. There were even covenants taken. In one particular covenant, there was blood being splashed all over, not just the, uh, the holy objects, but blood splashed on the people themselves so that they would join into this by saying, yes, we will obey, we will be obedient and that blood was the signification of the idea that because blood is being shed, because of the importance of this, because something or, or someone died, uh, this is the ratification of it. This is our level of, of desire and obedience. So that Old Testament language is, is borrowed by the New Testament writers, and they talk about not a 
a, an Old Testament priesthood that continues with the sacrifice of animals, but that clearly it points forward to a time in which there would be that perfect lamb who would be slain. And of course, we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the perfect Jewish person, sinless, undefiled. The writer to Hebrews you know, calls him such things so that he would be that perfect man. And of course, we know him as the perfect God-man because only God could have come down from the heavens to the earth in the person of Jesus because everyone else had blown it. Everyone else had been sinful and wicked. And so we needed a, a savior. We needed a representative, a, a true go-between, a true mediator. So that as we were, were stuck between God and men as sinners before God and defiled and wretched and failures, we needed that holy and perfect and sinless representative and that's of course the Lord Jesus and it's so amazing to me that the New Testament writers sort of pick up on this sacrificial language and takes it into a let's call it a spiritual sphere where we're not talking about the literal sacrificing of, of bulls and goats and and all of that anymore we're actually talking about the things that are of a spiritual dynamic. We're still standing before God. We're still in need of the sacrificial atonement of Christ on the cross. And he had to literally die in order to be that perfect sacrificial substitute, that vicarious atonement on our behalf. But now, spiritually speaking, we are to be involved in some of the same activities, again, spiritually speaking, that that Old Testament priest signified. And near the top of that list, or perhaps for you and me, spiritually speaking, at the top of that list is our own intercessory prayer, particularly for our people. Now, it could mean, of course, our people collectively in the sense of, of other brothers and sisters in Christ that we know that we would desire to pray for and to love and to cherish in ways that would call us to get on our knees and to pray for them. Uh, we do that. We do that with our fellow local church members. We hear of someone who's going through a very difficult time and we want to pray for them, and we're asked to pray for them. Almost every week that goes by, there isn't someone in an adult fellowship group here or in some other smaller meeting than the church worship service who's asking us, those who are in attendance with them, pray for me regarding such and such and so and so. And it is our glorious privilege to be able to intercede on their behalf. And how many times do we hear them say something like this when they give a later report about the answer to that prayer or further information about what we're praying? And they say, we thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you. We believe 
that those prayers were efficacious. They were effective. And here's what happened. And here's what God did. And we rejoice in that as a, as a local church. But there seems to be another way to pray that for us hits much closer to home. And I would say probably literally hitting close to home because we're talking about not just our wider spiritual family, but our own family, our physical family, the familial nature of how we're to pray. And I'm looking out at you now and I'm looking at males. Now maybe there are some females who are watching by live stream, but clearly I'm talking to a group of males, of men. And all of us have the biblically mandated responsibility to pray, yes, for the greater family of God, but particularly for our own families. Just as I was driving in this morning, I was praying not only for you and not only for other males in our church who aren't here, but particularly and in a targeted way for my own family. Now, uh, my wife is deceased now, and so uh, my prayers for her are completed. But I have eight children and 15 grandchildren. And I'm pleading with the Lord through my intercessory prayers for them. I prayed for each of them by name this morning. Now, in a 20-minute commute, you can't pray for everything. So what you can do very practically is work at ways for which you believe and perhaps even know some of the individual struggles that some of them may be going through. And if you don't, it would be a great idea, and we can talk about this in the sort of Q&A time, um, to use a little bit of, uh, of uh, mimicking and maybe just a tad um, uh, extended from Jerry. I always love it when he finishes teaching and he says, all right, let's talk about it. All right, what's on your minds? Let's talk. We, we want to do that. And part of that is the extension, even in an exaggerated sense, of this is the payoff. This is how we can individually see how to apply some of that which has been biblically instructed uh, by him for us so that we can pray. And I think some of that kind of intercessory prayer can be very practical. And so I want to talk about that as we finish the teaching time. And let's let's figure out, let's think of practical ways that we can be better prayer warriors, particularly for our wife, for our children, uh, and maybe even extended family, because this is, this is incredibly important. And I want to show you from God's word in three passages, ways that we can see this sort of, uh, let's call it a intercessory prayer motif. This is a way that the New Testament calls upon us particularly as males, to have that, that leadership role of being the intercessory spiritual priest that takes the, the people of God, our people, and particularly our, our families, we take them to God. And as we take them to God, we're, we're offering 
sort of uh, spiritual sacrifices of praise. Uh, The New Testament even uses that kind of language. So that we're lifting them before our God and saying, here's here's my people, and I'm asking you to bless my people. One doesn't have to look too far to see Moses, and he was that go-between between God and, and man. And there were some shaky moments, wasn't there, in the history of Israel about Moses, even at one point saying, if you blot me out, then don't blot this people out. And he's praying and he's agonizing about this, this sinful people. And he's asking God, don't destroy them. Let them live, even if you knock me out of the way. And the Bible speaks very clearly about how efficacious those kinds of prayers were and that God relented, quote unquote, from those things. Now, of course, you and I know it's not God uh, doing something different than the divine plan. It was God working in Moses' heart. That's one of the reasons among many to to show him how serious this, this matter is. So this is the kind of thing that I think would would greatly help us and assist us and maybe just downright convict us that we need to be better prayer warriors for our people. So let's look at three New Testament passages that I think show us this in very clear ways. The first is in the book of Romans. So let's turn to the book of Romans. And when I read these things so that I don't have to make a constant comment about the sort of that Old Testament motif of sacrifice and, and uh, the altar and uh, the acceptability of that sacrifice before God. You know all that Old Testament language where uh, they would take this animal and uh, symbolically they would place uh, their hand on that animal because it wasn't the animal who needed to die, it was the sinner, the person who needed to die. But the symbolic transference of his hand being on that animal was that the animal was taking on the sins of of that person and the sacrifice. And then, of course, when the animal was burned up and the smoke was wafting into the nostrils of God, it was said to be a, quote-unquote, acceptable sacrifice. Well, look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You know this passage extremely well, I assume, but it sort of bears repeating on what I would call the calling, the calling, key word, the calling of our spiritual priesthood unto God. Now, this is our calling as spiritual priests, as it were, unto God, and particularly us as males. It's not going to be flattened out to be only males, of course. All of the body of Christ, men and women and children, are a part of the spiritual priesthood, but we're zeroing in on ourselves as men. And this is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and we know that these mercies are all that has been communicated in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, do you see that language? A living sacrifice. Spiritually speaking, not... Not the Old Testament economy anymore. Those were types and shadows. They've given way now to the very person of Christ. 
his actual literal death on the cross, the actual literal giving up of his blood in sacrifice to God. But this is a spiritual sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy, and then notice that word, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your spiritual, spiritual service of worship. And then it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is the spiritual way to be a living sacrifice by God's testing of us that we would discern what is the will of God, what is good, and here's that word again, and acceptable and perfect or complete. So this Romans 12, 1 and 2 sort of starts us off with this language. And as it does, believe it or not, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, turn there, Romans chapter 15, borrows this same Old Testament language and he refers to himself. Now, ultimately, though, yes, he was called by God in a unique way. He was called by God even while he was still in his mother's womb. The Bible tells us, Galatians chapter 1. But the calling, that's this first of the three points this morning, the calling is still, though unique to Paul, a kind of representative calling for us, not in supernatural and different ways uh, as it was with Paul, but I just want you to notice the language that he uses. He says in verse 15, but on some points, Romans 15, 15, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, very similar to the NASB. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now again, this is, this is endemic to Paul, specially called by God. This is not a, a calling that all of us have. We're not called to go to uh, Gentile parts of the world uh, like Paul did. There's a uniqueness here. But if you flatten it out and look at it uh, for all of us, we're all caught, called by God to be ministers. We're to minister to others around us. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now again, any of the Jews who were in Rome, who would be listening to this. And remember, Paul was not the founder of the church at Rome. But, and there were expulsions of Jews, so many of them out of Rome because of all the persecution and all the issues. So there would have been obviously a greater, far greater abundance of Gentiles in Rome, but a few Jews. And Paul's now beginning to teach and tell them as he writes, let me explain to you some of this background. And he's using that background to talk about a spiritual reality. And what is that reality? The, priestful, uh, the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering, think of all that Old Testament language, the offering of the Gentiles may be, and there's our word again, acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul was looking at his group of people, the ones he was called to serve, 
the Gentiles, largely. Now, the Acts 9 passage and some other passages in the book of Acts where Paul gives his testimony, it's certainly a calling to both Gentiles and to Jews, but largely to Gentiles. He was called to be the apostle of God, late born, as he says about himself, to the Gentiles. But he also had a ministry to Jews, and he himself was a Jew. But the vast majority of places that he went throughout his whole ministry before the Lord took him was to the Gentile world, to see them come to Christ. And he refers to this this Gentile world of people who would have been completely different than whom Paul wanted to minister to. He was, he was, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, so very concerned about the Jewish people, his own people. But God had called him uniquely also to take this Gentile world who were utter enemies of the Jews and, and to love them and to seek them out for Christ. And so he uses this language I've got Gentiles as an offering that I'm bringing to you, Lord. And I'm praying that this offering of these Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders. And of course, that was one of the ways that Paul showed the gospel is true. By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem, this is Romans 15, 19, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, Illyricum, which by the way, most of that Illyricum is uh, modern day Albania. So that's how far Paul wanted to get around to. Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, I read that passage in chapter 15 because this is a passage that's talking about spiritual sacrifices, a spiritual ministry. And that's what we have with our wife and children. If you want to sort of bring it down to that sort of manageable level that now, of course, not all of you are as yet married. Most of you undoubtedly will be. Uh, probably as I look around, most of you are married. Uh, you may not as yet have children. Most of you probably do have at least a first child, if not many more. If you reduce it down to us as spiritual men who are like a spiritual priesthood, that's sort of what this room could be seen as, and we're offering up our family as an acceptable sacrifice to God. We're, we're leading them to be righteous. We're leading them into holiness. We're, we're leading them to a place where we will pray and hope and believe and work, Lord, to see them as our offering to you. And we trust and hope and pray that this offering will be acceptable to you. And one of the most important things, if you look at your Old Testament, even Job, for instance, Job 1.5, and 
Job 42, just sort of right there at the end, sort of bookending the book. Chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 42, Job is praying intercessorily. He's praying intercessory prayers for not only his people, his own family, but God even says, you, Job, you're going to need to pray for these counselors. And so these counselors are unacceptable. And I'm going to tell my servant Job to pray for you, that I don't wipe you off the face of the earth because of your ungodliness and your, your wrong and mistaken counsel. I accept him. I don't accept you. But I'm asking Job to pray for you. And that spiritual sacrificing, that priesthood of the Old Testament, perhaps, perhaps the number one duty on the heart and on the workers' list of what it meant to be a priest was intercessory prayer. That was probably number one on the list as a list of duties, that intercessory prayer. And in a sense, and not only interestingly, but fascinatingly, in every one of these places in the New Testament, we're seeing that language of intercession, spiritual sacrificing, offering it to God, praying on behalf of others in an intercessory way. We're the go-between. And prayer lurks around every one of those passages, just like it does in the Old Testament. It may not be in the same verse right after it. It may not be in the same section, but it certainly is in the same book. And usually it's actually in the same very section where it's talking about this spiritual sacrificing, this acceptability before God, this, this kind of priestly work, spiritually speaking, and prayer lurks around there somewhere. Notice what Paul says in verse 30, just really, relatively speaking, a few verses later after he, he's talking about this priestly service of the gospel of God. He says, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together, agonize together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He's asking his fellow workers, his fellow members in the church at Rome to pray to God on his behalf. And what does he pray? Verse 31 that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Those, those men that were always nipping at Paul's heels to wreck his ministry. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. Notice that language. My acceptable service. Isn't that tied right in back to Romans 12? This acceptable service to God. This spiritual priesthood of anointings and the incense. You remember the incense from the sacrifice would waft up to the nostrils of God and it would be said to either be acceptable or not acceptable. And so he's saying, I want you to pray intercessory prayers on my behalf. And as they waft 
to the very nostrils of God, I pray that God would see them as acceptable and then answer those prayers because they are acceptable. Now, I know all of this has its roots in the Old Testament and having its roots in the Old Testament, it's fascinating to me how it comes into the new covenant ministry of the local church, which are not Jews, we're not the reconstituted people of God replacing the Jews, but the spiritual language is similar. The spiritual language, an acceptable service to the saints, he says in verse 31, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May, here's Paul's own prayer, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So this is our calling, brothers. This is, this is God's calling in our lives. A spiritual priesthood unto God, the calling of God to us for spiritual service. And I would say, of course, the, the main act of our spiritual service is our intercessory prayers. Maybe first and foremost, maybe at the very top of the list. And of course, prayer and the word. Because you and I know that at times when we're praying, we don't pray and know how to pray as we ought to pray. And in Romans 8, it says sometimes even the Holy Spirit is the groaner who will groan with words that are far beyond our ability to comprehend. And he's like our intercessory prayer partner who groans when we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so he, he, he lifts our prayers by his own intercessory prayers. And then in Romans 8, 34, just a few verses later in that same chapter, it says that as the evil one, the diabolos, the devil, when he's accusing us, and of course the book of Revelation says he accuses us before God day and night. And it says, yet, because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it says Jesus as our great high priest himself is interceding for us. Brothers, what marvelous prayer partners we have in the Holy Spirit and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you, can you imagine when your prayers and my prayers fail, not because they, they might not even, you know, sort of pass the doctrinal test as a biblical prayer, but when we're so down and discouraged and defeated, and maybe it's about our family, that we can go to our God. And even when we're spent and we can't pray as we ought because we're so overburdened with it, that the Holy Spirit takes us up as our prayer partner and he groan prayers. He's a groan prayer. And, and it's too deep for words. It's, it's the inter-Trinitarian lifting up of our leadership to our people. 
And then it says, and as we are being racked with accusations by the evil one, that our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is himself interceding for us. The go-between between the Father and ourselves. And he prays for us. We're going to look later in Hebrews 7 that he says that it says he always makes intercession for us. Always. Constantly. Day and night. What an encouragement that even when you and I are sleeping on our beds, that the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf. That the Holy Spirit is taking us up. And I imagine if it's anything like my life and my leadership, it's every night that I sleep, they are praying that I would do better the next day and better the next day after that and the next day after that. That's their prayers. And so this, this intercessory prayer life of ours as men is incredibly important. This is, this is our prayers. And in that same passage where it talks about the Lord Jesus and what Christ has accomplished, verse 18, through me, it always has not only that intercessory prayer idea sort of lurking in these passages, but it's also talking in language sometimes very explicit, sometimes a little bit more implicit, about the work of Christ on the cross. That that Messiah of Israel, that one who, who is fully obedient, who, who died a vicarious, atoning, sacrificial death, who was himself perfect, sinless, undefiled, so that he becomes the great high priest, even if we're offering some kind of spiritual sacrifices unto God of our own intercessory prayers, it's always, brothers, always through Christ. It's through Christ that we're praying. That's why we say in Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's our way of saying through you, Christ, I will have the family that you have called me to have. It's only because of your death and your resurrection. It's only because of what you did on the cross for sinners like us that we're going to be able to have any efficaciousness with our prayers. And, and that's, of course, what the Jews looked for. They looked for this coming Messiah. And you and I live now on this side of the cross. And because we live on this side of the cross, we know who that Messiah is. It's the Lord Jesus. And he went to that cross and he died that vicarious, sacrificial, substitutionary death so that you and I could have the mediation of the Son who would then also intercede for us through the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit that you and I would be able to pray in such a way that our prayers would be efficacious, effective before the Father through Christ in the power of the Spirit. Now look, we, that means we've got everything going for us. There, there is no reason, no, no hindrance, no battle that could, by Satan or the world or even by my own remaining sin, 
None of that will thwart the purpose of God that if he's regenerated us, if he's called us with a holy calling, if he's called us to be a husband, if he's called us to be a father, this calling of our spiritual sacrificial service to God will be completed. Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it, perfect it, bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. This is, this is a guilt edge guarantee that God will do his work in us. And the number one work that he wants to do in our hearts is to sanctify us in Christ Jesus and lead through us the people of God and particularly not just the body of Christ in this local expression, but in our homes, in our families. Now, this is, this is high-intensity prayer. This is a long, elastic praying that God would make me that kind of man and that God would make me that kind of leader and that male to lead. And this is, this is Paul's prayer that that in the priestly service of God, I would do my ministry. And for him, of course, he was a single man. Perhaps he was married and widowed. Perhaps he had never married. The, the, the writing of comments of the commentators make up many, many books on that matter. We don't know. We don't know ultimately. So what he did, even in his singleness, was to take upon the responsibility as a man, as a male, a people group, these, these Gentiles, called by God, and he had a job to do. Well, we are not like that. We don't have an entire people group, but we do have our families. And they are our main target for our prayer life, and particularly your prayers for your wife. Do you pray for your wife regularly? Do you pray for not just her needs, but her spiritual life. We know that Ephesians 5 says that when we cherish our wives, we're, we're bringing, and it's that, it's that similar language, it's the, the bringing of a bride, using that metaphor, to Christ. I'm, I'm bringing her to you, and I hope in a pure and chaste way. Well, I don't know about you, brothers, but I don't know how I could bring my my wife as the church is being brought by Christ to the Father in such a way that she's chaste and, and matured and Christ-like if I leave out the vehicle of prayer. How, how could I do it? How, how can I bring her to God if I don't pray her to him? Lord, I, I pray for her. I pray that you would make her all that she could be and should be. I, I want to bring her to you as a sweet, cherished vessel. And of course, we're not talking about uh, things that we could bring to God that are important. My, my house, my physical house, my, my car that keeps running as it should, that I don't have a lot of bills with regard to my car or my house or even my own health, as important as that is, Lord, that this vehicle would get to work and that I would be able to do it. More important than all of that. And those are very important things. More important than that is bringing her to the Lord.
praying for her, interceding for her. You know that they have challenges, they have fears, they have things that burden them, particularly and probably most often their burdens about the children, their burdens about maybe even ourselves and our leadership. And we then should return the favor, as it were, and pray for her and pray for the children in a way that we know would please them and encourage them, which I think practically would also mean actually praying with my wife out loud, maybe holding hands, so that she's also hearing our prayers, not as a show, not as a show, but we're, we're sort of using this wafted language of a sacrifice. I'm bringing my dear wife as a sacrifice unto you, Lord. And, and I want to see her brought to you in a chaste, virgin-like way that, that she's becoming so much more Christ-like each day by day. So I bring her to you. Now, even if you didn't pray that kind of prayer directly in her presence out loud, you would still be praying fervent, effective prayers on her behalf. But perhaps if you did pray that way in front of her, for her, how encouraging do you think that might be? They might come away in prayer sessions like that with a whole new appreciation and perhaps a whole new view of you and your prayer life, particularly toward her. And praying together with her, even though you're leading the moment in prayer, that you're praying for the children. I cannot tell you how many times my wife Beth and I were holding hands, we're praying for the kids together, sort of that bond together. And I'll be the first to admit, every single one of the eight children in our home had some major crisis in their life, spiritually speaking, usually through some sin, some sinful act, some sinful way, some sinful, uh, wicked kind of, of uh, living in this dirty, rotten world, making sinful choices. And what, what does that do to a woman? What does that do to her heart? It can challenge a woman's heart possibly like nothing else. Because you and I have never had the opportunity to do what they did, and that was to go through excruciating pain to birth them. That never leaves them. They think about it. They've experienced it. And I've thought many days, especially now in her absence, for my dear wife Beth, having a vaginal birth of eight children, I can't even think straight. That's just incredible to even, to even consider. 
eight children. And I was there for every one of them. And it was hard. And every time I saw the, the baby coming out of the birth canal, I said, thank God I'm a man. Because I don't think I could do that. And they think about that. They enter into that, not just physically, but mentally. And all of the rest of their days, no wonder they say, I've got a communion with you. I birthed you. I brought you into this world. All of the calamities, all of the challenges, all of the heartaches, but also all of the joys, all of the happiness of seeing and being a part of raising these, these children. It's all a part of that process. And in that woman's mind is all of that that constantly percolates. And when we come alongside them as men and we are interceding for them and perhaps praying together and perhaps holding hands together and then appreciating the wife of our youth in the presence of God as you both intercede for your children brings a spiritual bond that is not easily broken. Is that not true, brothers? I mean, some of you have just had your first child. And you're going through it, and you're, 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 you're excited. It's, it's a dy dynamic that, that is new and fresh, and, and it's, it's vigorating. It's, it's, it's a, I, I just remember that first child, Lacey. And I kept saying to myself in my mind, and to a few good friends, I'm a dad. I'm a dad. I remember going playing some basketball shortly after Lacey's birth, and I couldn't wait to tell the guys on the court, I'm a dad. And I guess that's probably because I didn't grow up with a dad. So I didn't know all of those dynamics, and I wasn't taught and told and nurtured and discipled into that. And then when I read the pages of the New Testament, and I, and I hear all of this language about our spiritual sacrificing, spiritually speaking now, but taking the root of all of that which is so fresh in our minds from reading our Old Testament, and that God is using our spiritual sacrificing to have an acceptable aroma that he is pleased with as we intercede for these women and for these children. This is, this is what the New Testament is calling us to. This is Romans. Now let's go secondly to another Bible book, the book of Hebrews. And this is shown very clearly here too. And this is, this is so precious, my friends. So precious. It has all of these same elements, the sort of spiritual sacrificing. The calling is listed there in Romans 15, and now this, number two, is the confession. The calling is a spiritual priest in Romans 15. This is, secondly, the confession of our spiritual priesthood unto God, the confession of it. If, if the first one was our ministry of prayer, you could use that idea, that one word, 
the idea of my spiritual priesthood unto God is a calling for my ministry to them, my ministry to my home, my family. This is a confession, a confession. You say, what do you mean? Look at Hebrews 2, verse 15, excuse me, 17. Therefore, he, referring to Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers, that is, human beings, but particularly the Jews, of course. He had to be made like that in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. There's that language. Here's similar language again. In the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So all of this propitiation language, Christ's high priestly service, it's actually not just something that we could say is a part of our emulation. We, we need to be these spiritual priests unto God. Christ is, is the high priest, the great high priest, but it's also a doctrine. It's a doctrine to confess. That's why we're different than all other religions of the world. This is our doctrine. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. And then he just talks about Moses. That word, our confession, this is a, a calling, yes, but it's also a confession of ours that Christ is our great high priest. And we underneath the great high priest are spiritual priests offering up a savory of acceptability to God in doctrinally confessing that Jesus is Lord. That means, brothers, that doctrine is incredibly important. All about the doctrine of Christ is incredibly important for us which I think for us as spiritual priests in our home accentuates the matter of our teaching. Our showing the family by not only our example of being called to intercede for them, but also leading them in a doctrinal confession. We are to doctrinally teach the women and children in our family so that they too can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's that's this second spiritual priesthood. This is our confession. Look at chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4. Here it is again. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near. And here's this praying again. Here it is. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. That's prayer language. Drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if, if we weren't motivated enough to draw near to the throne of grace to pray as spiritual priests for our family, look at what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, his godliness. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, there's that Language again of substitutionary atonement, sacrifice, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You say, yeah, but I don't necessarily see that sort of uh, priestly spiritual language in this text. Well, he saves it to chapter 13. Look over there. Hebrews 13, and I trust, brothers, that you're writing this down and that you are going to be looking and meditating on these passages for your spiritual service. Look at chapter, uh, actually going up a little bit into chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, Hebrews 12, 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. There's that spiritual, sacrificial language there. Offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So our worship is what we offer. We bring our people to church. And collectively, we worship the Lord together. That's why if you are not attending with your family on Sunday morning, and particularly even on Sunday evening, I want to beseech you to do so. Because this is a way to show, especially those kiddos, how important you believe the Lord's day is. And that sacrificial language is right there in chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you see all of that? That language there, verse 15, through him, this is the payoff, this is the, this is the application, through him, Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You see all that language? Sacrificial offering, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, and here's what it is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. You're, you're confessing his name. You're, you're offering your lips. Jesus is Lord. I'm offering up my attestation, doctrinally speaking, that, that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Savior, that he's the sacrificial substitutionary atonement that is, has been offered to God and God accepted such a sacrifice. 
Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You say, well, where's the, where's the prayer? You mentioned that prayer is always sort of uh, lurking. There it is, verse 18, pray for us. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. And then verse 20, here's his own prayer and praise. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If, you, if you're struggling with, Lord, I don't know what to pray about. I'm, I want to pray with my family. I want to pray directly for them and maybe even with them. There's a great prayer to pray right there. Just open your Bible. You can pray with your eyes open, and sometimes your eyes open right on the biblical text. Lord, here's, here's what I want to pray for my family. My Children, all eight of them, they profess Christ. And I have heard little snippets from them, usually in just one-on-one times with me where we're talking about the Lord, talking about their lives, me sharing with them my life. And they'll say something like, I know you pray for me, Dad. I know you pray for me. Pray, pray for this right now. Because I think they believe that there's an efficaciousness there. There's an effectiveness there. So as I said last Sunday night, I've come to the place where I've seen my prayers as sometimes when I'm just praying in my heart, uh, even when I'm driving or something, and I get distracted with my own brain because I'm thinking about, some, oh, I've got to do that. And, oh, yeah, I, gotta, I forgot that. I gotta. And so I just said, Lord, I don't want to come into your presence and then be actually distracted from your very presence. I mean, can you imagine that? I'm praying to the God of the universe, and all of a sudden I think about, you know, what i got to do tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow's important, but that's tomorrow. So I just decided i just, I got to pray out loud so that I'm not only praying with my mind, but I'm hearing with my ears my own prayers so that I wouldn't be so distracted. And so I just go down either the birth order, Lancer, Lacey, Lancer, Lindsay, Lauren, Lucas, Lexa, Lisa, I just, or I go bottom up. And they've said, Dad, would you pray about this? Dad, I, I need you to pray about this. And I, I just say, Lord, I'm in this car. I want to pray. I'm asking you. I'm interceding on their behalf. If, if some of them have professed Christ, but I don't know where they are uh, spiritually and ultimately because only you do, I pray that you would come into their life and save them with a holy calling and that you call them to a life of gratitude and service to you, Lord, please. And Lord, if they're, they're all true believers and they're known to you as believers, work in their lives, see their sanctification uh, come to fruition because that's what your, your word says. Philippians 1.6, that's what your word says. And I'm praying that they would have that very thing. And that's this, that's this language of they need to have a doctrinal confession. They need to believe in Christ and Christ alone. And that's our teaching ministry to them. Thirdly and finally, 1 Peter. 
1 Peter. First Peter 2, again, this language is marvelous. You've already heard it from Jerry's exposition. But notice what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Again, all of this language of Christ's atonement, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's coming. You yourselves, verse 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice the words, chosen of God, spiritual house, precious, and a holy priesthood, verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's like that Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? That acceptable to God, spiritual sacrifices. He even goes in, on in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's that, that language again. And, and if, if you want the... For memorization purposes, the calling, Romans 15, the calling of our spiritual priesthood, the confession, that's in that Hebrews 2 and 4. I quoted Hebrews 7, don't have time for it, but it says that Jesus is continually making intercession for us, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. That's our confession of Christ and Christ alone. And then thirdly, I call this because it talks about a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. Let's call it the community. The calling, the confession, and the community of our spiritual household. And of course, I think it's two things, the church and the home. Our spiritual family outside our home and our home. Our church family and our family at home. And it's a community it's a spiritual house. It's a holy priesthood. Now, of course, this passage is talking about it as though it is, of course, a moniker, a way of speaking about the body of Christ. And that is true. But each one of us in the body of Christ have individual responsibilities in your home to be a spiritual priesthood unto God, offering the sacrifices of your prayers and your leadership. Now, as we close, because we're going to take maybe a few questions, this might be a, a help to you. I may not agree with every little jot and tittle of this, but I thought this was helpful. It's a little bitty booklet. I just brought it to show it to you by Sam Waldron, pastor in Kentucky. A man as priest in his home. A man as priest in his home. About 97 pages of information. Again, I might quibble with a few things about the discontinuity and continuity of the Old and New Testament, but in the practical sections of what he's written, I thought there were some gold mines in here. He says this on page 37, talking about our spiritual priesthood. He says, how can we possibly claim to be the heads, providers, guides, and protectors of our families 
if we neglect the most important method of assuring their welfare, the means of intercessory prayer. I think that's right. Our duties as the heads of our homes necessarily include interceding for our families. I think he's right about that. Then he says this at the end of a chapter on a man as an intercessor in prayer. He says, if Christ's example about being a great high priest over the house of God, if Christ's example teaches us that we must pray for our families, it also teaches us that he prays for his family. In other words, I've shown you Romans 8, 34, uh, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us as his spiritual family. He as the elder brother. He says this. He says, If his example shows us that we must attempt to effectively pray down blessing on our families, it also demonstrates that he sovereignly prays down blessings on his own family. And here's the supremely comforting part. Christ's prayers are always heard. He prays for us as a part of his family that we might pray for our own families. Thinking of this will help lighten the sense of inadequacy and guilt we have and enable us to begin to pray as we should. What a great God we serve. He ends with this, and so do I. If you are an unconverted father who is struggling with the tensions of life, this truth may be exactly what you need to set you on the road to salvation. If you feel like you need someone to pray for you, you're right. You do need someone to pray for you. Here is what the gospel offers you. On the basis of what he accomplished on the cross, an all-sufficient Savior ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God by him. He will pray for you as you're struggling. But you must come out of your sins and draw near to God through Christ. The good news, the incredibly gracious, never-ending good news, is that Christ ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God through him. Go to Jesus Christ now and ask him to pray for you. He will pray, and his prayers will do more than you could ever imagine. Praise God for that. All right, maybe about 15 minutes or so if you've got a question yes Brian yeah Lance great to have you here you're so knowledgeable so clear uh, really appreciated your your teaching two comments for you to to offer number one um, your such a capable counselor, you may understand um, yeah, psychological components of how mothers react and think. But I would say that since, since we and others in the room have adopted, mm -hmm. my, my impression is that a, a, a mother's love for a child is due more to her maternal nature and instinct, the way God has made her. 
whether they've gone through the pain of childbirth or not. Right. And John 16 tells us that the woman forgets the anguish of her childbirth because of the joy that the child has come, the new life that's arrived. So um, people that have, you know, women that have adopted and also had a natural child, they'll say they love them just the same way. Right. So I, I thought that, just wanted to bring that out. Second of all, I um, wanted to talk about the, the manner of prayer. You know, a couple of times you've mentioned that you, you pray during driving. Yes. Well, look, we're, we're, that's all well and good. We're to be in dialogue and communion with the Lord all day long and sharing our heart with Him. And it's great that we're you know, interceding at those times. But right. you know, Romans 12 calls us to be devoted to prayer. And Christ gave the example of going off by himself. Yep. And I like the idea of a prayer closet best of all. Now, of course, you wouldn't exclude that, I know, but right. I would emphasize that if you really want to be devoted, and because it's as important as you taught us this morning, you should, the, the, the most important aspect of your prayer life should be getting alone and undistracted not fitting it into some other thing that you've got to do, like drive to get to church. Right. Get on your own and fervently pray and stay focused and pour out your heart, you know, fervently to the Lord. Yeah, great, great points. Totally agree. Um, I'm only using examples, obviously, either personally or just representative examples. I definitely agree that a woman who does not birth a child but who adopts one or fosters one can be just as, as committed. Um, and Jesus, of course, used in that context the illustration of a woman who goes through the pains of childbearing uh, for the sake of the joy that is come that the child has been born. I think it's a relative kind of pain they never forget the pain, but it is overcome, overwhelmed, overshadowed by the joy. Um, and the same is true, and perhaps we could even say for both adopted or fostered or, or physical uh, bearing of children, in whatever way we're receiving them, the pain never goes away when there is a lack of requiting, you know, when, when we love and don't receive love in return. It hurts, it's excruciating, um, whether or not it's one that you birthed or you adopted or you fostered. And it could also happen when you're a person who has an extended family and sometimes, though it may have gradations of, of difference, when even nieces and nephews uh, are, are non-Christians. Um, I know even my, my extended family, although most of them are deceased now, uh, I have this pain in my heart to see that, that extended family come to know Christ. And when you see examples of those who, outside of your own family, but you're connected uh, in an extended family sense, who are who are struggling and who uh, reject Christ, that pain is also real. And I think the Lord gives us that because 
it's a physical and family way of giving us a heart for the spiritual family of God, the local church. We can all also become weary and challenged with hearing of the stories of wayward children from other families in our local church. They can be burdening. They may not be in intensity as much as our own flesh, as it were, but those, those relationships and seeing moms go through that pain or seeing dads go through that. We've got some adopted families in our church. I've actually counseled a few of them where they're undergoing tremendous trials. Some of you have gone through those tremendous trials of adopted children who either become wayward or they say ugly, mean things to us as those who are holding out a hand of love to them. So this is why I think the Lord gives us not only the duty, but the privilege of intercessory prayer. Because this wicked world is hard enough as it is for us not to be on our knees for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our own families because it is gut-wrenching, isn't it? Especially when you have wayward children. You have some that might believe, some that don't believe. Um, you, you, you go on your prayer bed. It doesn't have to be in the car when you're driving. I call it the prayer bed where sometimes you just, you just fall onto your bed with your hands on your face weeping literally for the waywardness of children or for the, for the pain that you see your wife going through because she's so distressed about their spiritual lives as you are, but she's and can be very emotional about it. And then you hold hands and you wipe the tears off her face. But that's when you and I are praying, but we're also counseling. That's that doctrinal confession part of it. The calling is we're all spiritual priests and we're interceding for them. But the confession is we also teach them in the moment. We remind them. I can't tell you how many times I said to my wife, look, remember, Satan is real as we're seeing. But God, the Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. First John. And then, look, I, I know that it seems like we're in a sprint now against the world, against the flesh, against the devil. But remember, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. And we need to pray and remain in prayer for the souls of these dear children of ours. And if God gives them life, they will always have breath to be able to repent and come to him. We want it to be in 10 minutes after birth. And it's okay, it's sealed, they're in the kingdom, you know, and perhaps in my judgment, my humble opinion, uh, the covenant children is sometimes for me a cop-out. And I think for us, we're saying, Lord, I want to always be in a, an attitude, a season of prayer. You're right in what you say in terms of uh, actual formalized praying, whether it's in a car, whether it's on your bed, whether it's during your quiet time, but also being in a regular flow 
of attitudinal prayer, where I'm just shooting up prayers all the time. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you're, if you're just in a conscious awareness of the divine, God, you're in my presence. I'm, I'm just going to pray a quick prayer. One time in the book of Nehemiah, he's literally praying as he's talking to the king. Lord, here's a wish prayer, real quick. Help me. One of the greatest prayers ever is this. Help. You know, it's one word. And I think all kinds of prayers are what we ought to pray, and particularly targeted prayers for the salvation of our children. And, of course, in my case now, for the salvation of these grandchildren. And I'm like you. I see the world being what it is. And we always want to say it's getting worse and worse and worse. And in one way it is. But it's been worse for a long time. It's been bad for a long time. But I think sometimes our sense of it is God allows us to see the worst of it and assuming the worst of it, that it actually energizes and innervates our prayers. It, it motivates us and it pushes us and prods us and pokes us into praying more and, and more fervently. So in whatever ways our wives and children have come to us, some of you like me have been widowed. Some of you might be on a second marriage. Uh, some of you uh, might be childless but married. I mean, all the varied ways and means in which we can apply these things that Scripture teaches us we, we ought to. Any other questions? Yes, maybe our, our last one, unless there's another quick one. Um, thank you for everything this morning, and I will keep it brief, because the more you talk, the more questions and convictions I have. So maybe we need a two- or three-hour uh, counseling session. And the, and the more questions, the more I talk. So. Here was the one that popped into my head in the, at the beginning, and the context, I guess that it came in was this. On one extreme, David and with the, the child with Bathsheba, how he continued to pray that God would spare that child. And the other extreme of Paul brought his affliction before the Lord three times and put it to bed. I'm uh, in praying for my parents who are now in their 80s, have some physical afflictions, believers, faithful servants of the Lord for certainly my whole life. As I pray for them, I, I pray that God, you know, all the things that I want God to do in their lives and thank him for doing those things, encouraging them, growing in their faith. I also pray that my dad's cancer will be healed, that my mom's Parkinson would be healed and her, she'd be able to walk again with her knees. My questions are these, there's two questions. One is, um, is there a point where I cease praying for those things and just say, this is God's will for them, and perhaps that is the way he's answering the other prayers in terms of continuing their sanctification? And then how do I, I pray for them in a way that's both doctrinally correct, God-honoring, and most effective? Because I know in my, I believe God's probably not going to heal them. Is that a lack of faith on my part, or is that just reality? Um, so, so I guess those are my two questions, how to pray better for them and is there anything wrong with me praying for God to heal them, yet thinking it's probably not going to happen? Well, that's a great, great question. Immediately what comes to mind is the Second Corinthians passage that says, 
though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. I think it's both and rather than either or. It's an acknowledgement to your parents as you speak to them, I know how difficult this is. I know how difficult the cancer is, the Parkinson's is. And here's what scripture tells us, mom and dad, as professing believers, reading that passage to them and saying, our earthly tents, our bodies are breaking down. It's the law of entropy. I mean, just everything breaks down. And because of that, our bodies, our shell is a shell of our former self. And yet, uh, and and for believers, our inner man, the truest part of us, spiritually speaking, outside the, the physical crust, is being renewed day by day. So give me some prayer requests that are not merely and only targeted to the adaption for help with the pain. But what can I pray for you in the inner man of your life? Now, often they will say something like this, that the pain would go away, that I would go to be with the Lord. I'm ready. Why isn't he ready to take me? Um, Things like that. And those are all natural and very normal. So what we can do is pray for things like this, As you continue to grapple with the pain, which is a part of this world, the breakdown of this world, the curse on the earth, as that is occurring, mom and dad, I'm going to pray most importantly and most fervently for your inner man, for your spiritual life of trust and faith and confidence that God knows what he's doing in keeping you alive. And he's wanting me as one of those examples to see your faithfulness as you come to die. And and you've got an opportunity to show me and show others in the family how to die well. One of the things that I told my wife when I saw her languishing through her battle with cancer for two years and four months. And I've said it to my family a hundred times afterward. She taught us all very important, valuable, lasting principles on how to die well. Now, she was 57 years of age when she died. And we automatically want to punt to the idea of that's too young. But that's our doctrinal confession, isn't it? Part of our priesthood, our spiritual priesthood, is say, yes, but the Bible says this. And the Bible tells us confessionally, the doctrine of it, is that God is sovereign and he chooses both the day of our birth and the day of our death. And what we're responsible to do is to be faithful between those two marks. And as we are, God will be glorified. So let me... Let me challenge you, mom and dad, if possible. And of course, you know them and you know what you can say and what you can't say, how long to say it, if it's brief, if it's a little bit longer, if it's more reflective, or if it's, I've got maybe four sentences here that I can, that I can use, and that's it, is to say thank you in whatever ways that you know you can, and it's a true statement, 
thank you for helping to show me how to die well. And I think that can challenge them to persevere and to be faithful. And perhaps that will be a great encouragement to them, even if they they don't ever tell you. But they're hearing you as a spiritual cheerleader, saying you can do this and God will help you and God will give you strength to die well. And he will be pleased with those who die in the Lord because when they die, you know, to use the Pilgrim's Progress imagery, when they, when they traverse the river of death and they come to the celestial city, all of that pain, all of that sorrow will be eclipsed in a moment because we'll see Jesus Christ face to face. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this series of passages on the calling the confession, and the communities that we serve. We, we want to pray for our wife far more than we have up to this point. We want to pray for our kids as the family interceder. We know our wife is praying. We know that she is burdened. We know that she prays fervently for us as leaders, for herself and for her children extended family, but we also know that we lead in this way. Father, forgive us for any of us who have not led in a way that has been honorable to you. And we pray that we would be revived in our concern and duty to be intercessory prayer warriors on behalf of that sweet lady that calls me her husband and for those sweet children who call me their dad. May we return the sentiment by calling them our wife and children and coming to you and thanking you for them and interceding for them through Christ, by the Spirit, to you, Father, because you deserve all all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.